All right, so as they say, every day we slip further from the light of God's path. And that is particularly true in Washington, uh, where this week the number one trending topic has been all about Senate fashion or lack thereof uh, and the willing, the degree to which people are willing to tolerate that. Uh, and I would like to ask you both, just potentially as senators, you know, from the great states of, of you know, uh, of uh, of your own origin or, you know, uh, or from Virginia or from Maryland or what have you, uh, you know, p- pick your state. What what is your plan in terms of how you would approach the new Senate dress code? And do you share Senator Collins response to this? As I read the headline in the Hill, Collins pans new Senate dress code. I plan to wear a bikini tomorrow. <laughs> Look, continues to show that she is underrated. Um, her response to that, fantastic. fantastic. Let's not forget. She, she's, she I just I, I point out, Susan Collins, people always underrate Susan Collins. She is just good at winning elections and good at making the right decision when it comes to all manner of things. She's profoundly underrated as a politician. She's always lumped in with Murkowski, and, and I don't think they're even close in terms of political skill. I think Susan Collins is... is Anyway, you know how I think about it, but go ahead. hundred percent. But look, how, what would I do, man? I would be like Ricky Bobby on steroids. I'd go down to the floor and I would monetize every piece of my clothing. You know, if somebody wanted to, you know, have, uh, you know, lose hardware and, you know, Schenectady, New York, fantastic. So put a little patch there. Um, you know, it would be a, uh, bring new meaning to selling access. You know, you'd be able to go down there looking like uh, you're some European soccer player with uh, logos all over you. Maybe, maybe that could be, you know, a new thing that donors can give money for is uh is for that. So, uh, yeah, I would I would basically look like a NASCAR driver. No, I, I love that idea. I I would um I would I would definitely at, at some point. I mean, I I think I would I troll people all the time, but I definitely would cast a vote wearing a Callahan Auto Parts shirt just to, just to just to get that moment of, of virality i but, have one of those yeah so do i <laughs> so it's it's just you know there's so many opportunities to mock the institution or the institutional choices that they're making i don't think they've thought this through and the nascar yeah. driver approach is definitely something that that someone <laughs> should do and uh and you know you could also wear messages like you can you could you know approach it the way that you do like those silly, you know, uh, often, you know, uh, visual aids that they use on the floor. Like you could just walk around, you know, like wearing those kinds of things, you know, as something that would just gain attention. It's such a spiral toward the bottom in terms of, of the it's way. The race so to the bottom. Yeah. I'll, I'll say two things. One, as, as usual, you know, this, there's nothing new under the sun. Fetterman didn't start this. I mean, it was only a few years ago that Barney Frank was on the floor of the House. I mean, I know the House and the Senate are different animals, but, you know, Barney Frank was on the the floor of the House and like mafia Don business casual. It was like a a bad, loud jacket over an ill-fitting T-shirt. So, I mean, as, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more formal or a little bit more respectful about dress codes and and the propriety of those things and the point of it and the sort of the sort of diplomatic function of it and the the signal of respect to your colleagues and your peers i get it i'm a i'm a casual guy myself if it were up to me but 
you know, um, you know, you got to look presentable. I'll tell a very quick story of my days at uh, NR in the New York office in the Upper East Side or Midtown East office. Um, there was a guy who used to do the mail, run the mail room named Alex. Uh, Alex no longer with us. R.I.P. Alex. He was he was a very colorful character. He used to have pictures of of uh, old time wrestlers taped to the mail cart when he would he would go around. And he was a man of few words, but the words he spoke were. Uh, were always meaningful. And I was in the elevator one day and I used to be one of the, the most casually dressed guys at NR. And I would I would do it in part so that they couldn't ask me to be on TV because I, I was always scared of TV. So I figured if I wore a hoodie and jeans, they couldn't ask me to go on TV. So Alex gets into the elevator with me one day on the mail cart and I say, hey, Alex, what's up? And he just turns to me, looks me up and down on my hoodie and jeans and says, put on a collar. This ain't outdoor life. <laughs> <laughs> oh alex what a king <laughs> that's fantastic look, so i've I, tried to live by that since then look i am uh you know as anyone who knows me knows 90 percent of the time i am wearing jeans and cowboy boots uh or jeans and boots of some kind so it's like it, it doesn't i'm not angry in the way that like some other you know more sartorially interested people are however i feel like the person who's hardest hit by this has to be that irritating workwear dude because he's he's such an obvious just like the the kind of uh the guy who was the the room raider account or whatever he's just this irritating pissant leftist who goes on and basically craps all over republicans and the way they dress and always says that uh democrats look better including some of the worst outfits that that Joe Biden has worn he has given like the thumbs up to he's been profiled in a number of different places uh, but he never like fires to the left, which means that he's ignored completely the fact that it's Jared Moskowitz, a Democrat from Florida, who launched the Congressional Sneaker Caucus because he owns 150 pairs of sneakers. And and no offense, but 150 pairs of sneakers are too many sneakers. <laughs> like, uh, that's just too many. I don't know what I the cutoff is, but yeah. that's too many. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, look, like a baby step like sneakers. I'm willing to have a debate with that person, but the idea that John Fetterman needs to like live his truth uh, by wearing shorts and dressing like a hobo uh, when the guy is resume is so much, not a hobo, you know, that, that it's, it, that it's just absolutely insulting. Like it would be different if this was authentic, but it's not, it's a, it's a costume uh, and it's worn in, in ways to distract from the fact uh, that he's such an elitist. So you're saying well, there's a Ben Nighthorse Campbell corollary here that you can do the bolo tie if it's yes. a real yeah. thing. If it's I, a I real thing, you if the bolo tie is a perfect example. That is a real thing, and uh, and that is totally fine. And I get it, and I respect it. You know, and he, go ahead. Here's here's another part of this that I think we might be missing is this is going to open up members to new sources of pressure. Re remember, if you will, uh, the Flake Gate and uh, all the issues around Tom Brady and the Patriots. What happens when Dave Portnoy takes the social media and asks why uh, Senator Markey or Senator Warren are not down there with the uh, Roger Goodell wearing the clown nose shirt? <laughs> oh, man, that's a great idea. <laughs> someone, someone needs to, you know what? Uh, 
I do have at least two Barstool employees who are pretty senior who subscribed to my newsletter. I will have to ping them with that idea because I think it's it's absolute genius. Uh, makes total sense. And if the next time that Goodell gets called before uh, Congress, they should absolutely uh, de- just deploy that and act like they're just wearing normal clothes. <laughs> that would just be that would be priceless. Um, this is Thunderdome, and we have plenty to talk about this week. Uh, Donald Trump, not so much a fan of the social conservatives anymore. Seems like. Does an interview with Megyn Kelly, can't answer whether a man can become a woman, and then calls her nasty afterwards uh, in a in uh, an appearance uh, uh, for even you know asking these questions when it was actually a very polite interview and I thought that she was very fair with him, uh, but even more importantly, goes on with Kristen Welker, the new host of Meet the Press. Congratulations, Kristen, uh, and is asked. Uh, for the first time, I really think, a pointed question about the abortion issue, which has been rumored to be something that he wanted to run away from for quite some time, gives an answer that has been, and I think that this truly is, for the first time uh, in his in his post-presidential career, I think this is the first time that in un- unanimity, a conservative ideological portion stood up and denounced him. For what he said now they did it to varying degrees some people were a little softer than others but the harshest kind of criticism that i've ever seen him experience coming from the pro-life cause uh and you know to the point where it wasn't just i mean you had henry olson writing about it in the washington post you have you know people who are not normally associated with the pro-life kind of cause publicly saying this was a mistake uh and it just seems like he wants to run away from the issue but worse, he wants it to be known that he's running away from the issue. He's not subtle about it in the same way that he's not subtle about anything. That being said, we know how much that issue is one that Republicans, particularly D.C. Republicans, particularly Republicans uh, who are closely associated with the former president, including pollsters like Tony Fabrizio, uh, you know, have wanted to run away from and have said that, you know, this is something that's hurting us with uh, suburban women. Uh, and in order to uh, to win them back, we have to have, you know, something that isn't even as, you know, sort of middle of the line as it might seem as something like Lin- Lindsey Graham's proposal to, you know, a 15 week national standard, uh, you know, and certainly not to the point of the, the heartbeat bills that passed in m- multiple states, including states like Ohio, where you would think that it might be a problem, but actually, you know, saw the same governors who signed those things in the law, including obviously Kim Reynolds in Iowa. You know, not just popular, but enormously popular. So, gentlemen, uh, John, first to you. Do you think that Trump made an actual real mistake here, uh, given the level of backlash that he experienced? Uh, has he seen backlash? I mean, how much of it has has been in sort of elite social conservative circles? And how much of it have we seen? reflected in the reception he's received on the campaign trail or in polling numbers, things like that. Um, I, I think I just, it's a little, I think it's little, I don't think we actually have a poll that was conducted after this interview yet because it came out on Sunday. It, it continues. I think it is something that will continue. This, All of this makes Iowa ground zero for if, if Republicans want an alternative to Donald Trump as the nominee, the road through that goes through Iowa. Well, let me just put just to put this in context. Keep in mind, Kim Reynolds got up at Bob Vanderplatt's event at the family, uh, you know, family leader, whatever they call it, 
gathering that Tucker Carlson hosted for all those different members and literally signed the six week bill at that event. Like that's you know, the level of sort of, of, you know, the, the level of difference between her and sort of national Republican concerns on this issue, you know, could not be bigger. So it, that like, that's the level of, of kind of priority they put on it, but yes, continue. So uh, the, the question who is who's going to be willing to capitalize it or who can capitalize on it, um, you know, as I think as people know, I probably tend more towards the the realism of of the Nikki Haley approach, which I think is is really more being honest with people about what's possible. But you know, I don't know that Nikki Haley would run away. Brian, from this Brian Kemp denounced him. Well, you know, I, mean, I mean, you like like I I just think I think when you have like sitting governors who've put their like. You know, they've done the Ehrlich Bachman. They've walked into the the you know negotiating room and put their balls on the table and said, "Yeah, I'm willing to risk it for this." And that includes, you know, the governor of not just Florida who's running against him, but Texas and Georgia and Ohio and Iowa and South Carolina. And I mean, basically, in the early states, you know, I feel like this is like a New Hampshire, Nevada kind of thing as opposed to being. I just think I think it's going to hurt him. I think it's going to hurt him. I think more people will peel away in South Carolina and support Haley or Scott because of his decision to say this. I do think that. But you still need to have the field consolidate around somebody. And I think True. it's 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 I don't think that that's happened yet. There is not a not Trump. I mean, I think I think we're starting to see a consolidation around a not Ron, not Don, which seems like it's Nikki Haley at this point. Uh, but I, I think with Trump, I mean, he he has had this remarkable ability to. Um, you know, evade political gravity, you know, things that would kill anybody else, um, you know, including, you know, you know, comments about, you know, people in, in your, your orbit, Ben, and, um, uh, you know, whether, you know, prisoners of war are, you know, to be celebrated or, or diminished and like none of this stuff sticks to them. So yeah, no, I, I, I like, I like, pre I like presidents who aren't weak ass cowards on abortion <laughs> yeah although you know i i can't believe i'm about to do this but i will say that i think there's been a bit of an overreaction to what trump actually said and it just involves taking trump for what you know about him and for what you know him to be to see that like so for instance like josh even josh barrow my kind of go-to centrist pulse middle of the road pulse guy you know he wrote a, he wrote a, a substack saying you know Trump is doing hippie punching, which you might also call, uh, you know, assist a soldier moment, you know, in, in the, you know, political vernacular, which is you pick a, a high profile fight on your side and you denounce what you perceive to be an extreme or unpopular position. And that makes you look more appealing to moderates. I just don't give that's plausible, I guess. And I, I certainly think Trump is aware of how tricky this issue has been for Republicans mm -hmm. the last year. He's not that level of you know, un, unself-aware or unaware. So yes, he's aware of that. And I guess it's plausible that's what's happening. I think the likelier explanation is a lot simpler than that. If you actually look at the kind of the takeaways from that interview and from that question, he shits on a, a move by Ron DeSantis. Like what else did you expect him to do? Say, yeah. applaud Governor DeSantis? So, like, so I, will, I will, I will uh, offer something that was said to me at an event that you know sometimes they say to you you know uh you can cover this event but it's off the record or something like that but as a journalist uh you should know you don't have to agree to that uh and i got into one of those and uh and i talked to ron DeSantis when he was there and uh in in fact i brought up this issue and i because it was pretty close after he had 
agreed to sign the six week thing. And I said, you know, are you concerned about this? Because obviously Trump at some point will use this against you. And I, I want to say something about that timing thing in a second. But and his response to me was, I'd like to see him try that in Iowa, because if he wants to try that in Iowa, you know, the people in Iowa are pro-life. They're people who, you know, I connect with. And, you know, they may not be you know the same as, as the people that he's talking to, but I'm happy to go toe to toe with him on that issue in Iowa. Um, and he yeah, just and I- said that to be flat out. And the thing that I think he was thinking about in terms of that was like a debate stage moment or something like that, because at that point, you didn't know that Trump wasn't even going to, you know, entertain that idea. But now that moment has happened. And he's I mean, DeSantis is out, is out there criticizing his campaign is out there blasting out you know, how much, you know, he's been a hero for the pro-life cause, you know, et cetera. And to a certain extent, I think what they're trying to do is say Trump is acting scared, just like these national swamp Republicans are acting scared, whereas we're the state leader. But I don't know that voters are actually sophisticated enough to to see that, you know, to, to see this as being something where the, the quote that was given to Semaphore, and I wish that it was someone who had gone on the record, but Shelley Talcott got a quote from somebody who she described as a pro-life leader. And uh, they said, Trump is treating us like this was a transactional arrangement and the transaction is over. And I think that that's the best description that I've heard of this. They but you made the a deal with me and now it's done. Yeah, but that's the other piece of what I was going to say is like, he's always been transactional on this issue. I'm not I'm not going to. um you know, verbally slander Trump any more than I normally do here. But like, which of the GOP candidates do you think is more, let's just say, personally familiar with abortion than Donald Trump, right? <laughs> I mean, so he, it's, he's always been transactional on this on this question. Everyone knows it. So, I mean, and the other thing he tells Kelly is I'd pick a number of weeks that it would be a fabulous number of weeks. It'd be the best number of weeks, you know, you can imagine. It'll make your head spin, right? Typical Trump answer, which is what everyone is saying, which is what everyone is saying. So it's like, I actually do think there's a bit of an overreaction to this. I, one thing I think you're right about though, Ben, and it's, and it's, and it's going to play to a certain extent is, you know, what Trump, Trump understands that there is a lot of ambivalence among swing voters and among even rock rib Republican voters about what it means to be pro-life and where that line is drawn. I think some of the recent post row, you know, polling has shown that you know, people aren't as comfortable with absolutist positions as they were were comfortable sort of at least saying they were when there was, yeah. a you know, a Supreme Court decision that protected abortion, you know, and shielded it from the political process and the democratic process. Now that that's gone, people are kind of admitting that they're less comfortable with absolutist positions. But and my, the point I was going to make is, you know, what what DeSantis understands and what I think, you know, Iowa, you know, uh, re- Republicans understand and some of these, you know, smarter, like more in tuned with the GOP base Republicans understand is there is a block of of hardcore pro-life voters and they will vote with their feet and they will, you know, move to a candidate that that backs them, unlike the, you know, the broader base of GOP voters yes. that Trump is sort of talking to. The, the, their, their hierarchy of, of priorities is different. And, yes. And yes. And I think that you're co- completely correct in your in your analysis. The, here's the thing that I just think that he's exposing himself to. And I and I don't know why nobody's pointed this out. We shouldn't assume there won't be a pro-life third party candidate in this race. And yeah, if, who do you think that is? And and I don't know who that is. 
I don't know if it's some, I mean, like back in the day, it would be somebody like Tom Coburn, you know, but like some random, just super dedicated to pro-life causes person, you know, I don't know what a certain, you know, former Senator from Pennsylvania is up to these days, but just, you know, someone who basically says, you know, look, I, I, I believe this issue is so important that it's, I'm prepared to be a single issue candidate. And I think that if there if there are if there is enough interest, if there is enough you know uh, sort of 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 a backlash to this, it would be coming from people who actually don't feel any loyalty toward Trump, used him completely as a vehicle in the in the same transactional sense, you know, meaning like you know from the other side, uh, and now say you know okay, well transactions over, well I'm not you you do not own my vote, I can go in a different direction. And it's just interesting to me because everybody always thinks about like third partiers as being like, you know, pro-choice libertarians or or pro-choice Green Party candidates. And it's like, uh, you know, if 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 the actual bulwark uh, never Trumper movement wanted to actually have an effect on this election, you know, uh, it would be something that I think would look like that. And that's something that I think is a lot more dangerous than people understand, because those people as you say they 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 vote with their feet they go to a different candidate and they don't care they do not care about any other issue tell, tell well, you what i ben, think if, i wouldn't really worry about the bulwark though since those guys are you know probably just to the left of the lincoln project crowd um <laughs> no they can't they can't tolerate it uh, uh uh you know uh shout out jonathan last who literally wrote one of the best books about why you should have kids uh, and it's done nothing but vote for for democrats in favor of killing kids for the last 10 years so if, anyway. he, if he look if he gets out before Iowa, maybe sore loser laws don't apply, and and a gentleman named Mike Pence yeah. becomes the pro life third party. Candidate. Well, that's the but but that's the kind of personality. I don't know if it's him personally, but that's the kind of personality who would do something like that. You know, I I have prayed with my family, and this is something that I need to do because our the babies of America need and deserve a defender. Um, but I think. I think you do raise a good point with this, Ben, is that this is for a segment, and I don't know how big it is in a Republican primary electorate, and obviously this could depend on the state, where this is a not like a salient issue, but the salient issue. And who is going to figure out how to, because if it's if it's not this and it's not in Iowa, it's hard to imagine what issue derails Trump at this point. Um yeah, I mean, the, I did mention I did mention the man and woman stuff. I was surprised by his uh, reluctance on that point. Um, but I think it's who he is, right? He's a he's a New York, you know. Yeah, but, I, but but wouldn't he be like more of like an LGB guy than an LGBT guy? You know, like. Uh, but nobody. I think it's first part of the rainbow. Yes, but like. And you didn't live through part. the seventies, okay. Yeah, you look, for, you know, in New York. Kay- Caitlyn Jenner's probably said nice things about him. I think she has said nice but things. But Caitlyn Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner seems like she's to his she. I say she, he, whatever. He's still it, it's a dude, but he's committed to it. <laughs> um, is is one of these things where I think that Caitlyn is to his right on this because of saying things like the Leah Thomas stuff is unacceptable and you can't have. Uh, you know, uh, men racing against women. That's definitely something that Caitlyn Jenner said. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it, except except by kind of what John was getting at, which is here's a guy who, you know, his wife's a supermodel. 
He's a New York City guy. He spent a lot of time at Studio 54, you know, in the 70s. And it's just his milieu. And he's just more personally comfortable with it than potentially, you know, a lot of those other boomer or, you know, silent or greatest generation candidates, Victorian generation. I mean, there's a lot of old guys in the race. You know, candidates are. He's just a little bit more you know, personally comfortable with it. I don't, I don't know really what else Victorian to make it. Victorian generation. I really like that. <laughs> I might, I might use that. <laughs> um, so I, I don't want to spend the entire time on this. I think we need to move on to a couple of other different things that are happening. And you mentioned John earlier, the idea that Nikki Haley is now kind of cementing her, her place in the field as, as the not Ron, not Don candidate. I think that's true. But she has a big problem, and that's that Tim Scott is still in this race. Um, she has no shot at winning South Carolina with nine or ten points going to Tim Scott. If he gets out of this race, then she actually does have a shot of perhaps not winning South Carolina, but coming in a very, very strong second. I mean, like if you're looking at some of these polls, you know, especially if you're looking at second choices, though I always think that that's a kind of, you know, shifty measure. Uh, because you have no idea how much people are committed to it. Um, you know, she could be she could win as much as a quarter of the vote in South Carolina today. And you would assume that she would increase that number if things continue as they are. At what point is there a push to get Tim Scott out of this race? And at what point does that become something that people are comfortable saying in public, given that he's the most prominent, you know, black candidate in the in the race and you know in the party at the moment uh and that people i think just feel uncomfortable criticizing him for that reason that's that's hard and i but look i think i like i like tim scott and i think that that's been pretty apparent for you know the duration that we've been having you know this conversation i like tim scott i like him as a senator (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and i I think that he can the, the question is I think Scott is one of the the most decent guys in the field who is not running to be on Trump's shit list, but who is also not there to be like Trump's. I think I think Tim Scott genuinely is running for president because he thinks he can do good for America. But at, at some point, you know, the and I think one of the complicating factors for trying to get Scott out of the race is that he's got one of the better, you know, hard money war chests of any of these candidates. I mean, he's he's got some gas in the tank mm-hmm. now. You know, if, if he really kind of doesn't make it happen in Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, I guess he's I mean, at, w- at what point do you say, like, you know, Tim, what do you want out of this? Do you you know, do you want Trump to be the nominee or, you know, do you want to are you trying to be vice president for for Trump? I mean, I, I think that that's the part where I, I think better of Scott, uh, you know, and may, maybe and I don't know if I should or shouldn't. But, you know, I do think he is a guy that is trying to put the, the country first. But, and, but don't you think don't you think that like someone has to go to him and say, Tim, you're going to be third or fourth in your own state. It's going to hurt your political career to have that happen, you know, and, you know, not to make this comparison, because I think that it's a little unfair because he's so much smarter you Marco? And better. But but yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. that. Um, and, and I, go ahead. And look, I think that's the thing where, you know, it's. I think someone else, and I don't, I think Scott didn't term limit himself to two in the Senate, but I mean, at some point, somebody's got to be like, Tim, you've got a long runway in the U.S. Senate as a relatively young guy in that institution. And yeah, by the way, that, that I hate that, that, that the Senate term limit doesn't make any sense when you get in young, 
like term limit yourself if you're old but it just anyway go ahead <laughs> no I, I i i agree well i think the ultimate term limit is the voters but yeah um you know for a guy that you know, there's going to be a need for a new majority leader at some point in the next few years you know one way oh. or another and you, you know i i think that there's you know obviously the johns are going to have a say about that john corn and john thune and, and john barrasso but you know you could skip to i mean you know cornyn and um Gordon and Barrasso are both in their 70s. So like yeah. the, the, the thing that's sort of weird about this is like people are like, well, we're moving on to a new generation. It's like, ah, kind of only slightly, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's yeah. there's a need for real leaders. And, and the thing that I think is, is you know, always a factor here when you're a senator and you're running for president is, are you going to hurt yourself with this run? Yep. And I think a lot of people hurt themselves in 16, you know, in ways that were, you know, that affected their future yep. career. And uh, and I would like Scott to avoid that same result. And if he is viewed as being the reason that Nikki couldn't compete and that Ron couldn't compete, you know, with much more feasible paths to the nomination in South Carolina, presume again, presuming that Ron wins Iowa, like he needs to win Iowa in order to even, you know, be a factor. Uh, you know, I, I just think that Scott would be he would be blamed you know, in a way. And South Carolina had a great, you know, clearing motivation for the Democratic Party last time around. You know, you had everybody get out of the way for Joe Biden. It's the reason he's the nominee, you know, and it's frankly, sadly, the reason that uh, that Klobuchar, because she was unable to, you know, extract any kind of promises, did not end up being the veep. But that's a underrated story, I think, uh, in, in his dynamic. But anyway, the, the I just think that Scott has to get out. I think he has to get out before then. I think he should get out before there are any votes. Uh, and I just don't, I mean, unless he is able to achieve some massive turnaround, um, just, you know, being a stagnant fourth or fifth in these polls is not good. Yeah, you're going to see, I mean, maybe maybe he'll really dazzle us in the next debate. Um, but I, I basically agree. And I, I should, you know, mea culpa a little bit and say that Haley has, overperformed my kind of public predictions on this podcast for what I thought she would do. And I, I think the part of what I said about her that's still right is there, you know, she doesn't know what kind of political creature she is. Um, and it's still, is still kind of trying to figure it out as she goes along. She's a little bit. Can I ask you what you mean by that? I mean, she's been in politics for quite a long time. Well, but because she was a she was an establishment, you know, darling who had a really great trajectory, like a lot of other people before Trump came she, on. She, she was not the establishment candidate when she that, came I, I actually Carolina. thank you for pointing that out. That she was not actually. Uh, she was. She was. She took on the good old boy network. Really, no, not when not when she started, but after yeah. she became a national figure in from her time in South Carolina. I mean, there was definitely was, some people who fantasized about like a Paul Ryan, Nikki Haley ticket, you know, that kind of thing back in the day but totally and she's a woman of color and you know and and telegenic and all of those things i mean i mean before the golden escalator moment she was on a short list conversation you know for the future of the republican party with a lot of those people you're talking about so i mean yes south carolina is its own weird political ecosystem and you know that i'm not you know qualified to get in, in the weeds of but my point is she you know served in the trump administration you know, showed some sort of bulldog tenacity in a foreign policy job and, you know, came out of it kind of thinking that she could chart this middle path. 
you know, between sort of being her, her, her own person and also kind of riding the, you know, MAGA light, you know, wave of a lot of people who thought that that was going to be their ticket to renewed relevance and, and, uh, and, you know, upward trajectory in the Republican Party. And when we did that show, however many weeks ago it was, you know, that episode talking about like, you know, let's role play why every candidate is in this race. My thoughts on Haley is she doesn't know why she's in this race other than that people, you know, a lot of donors and a lot of, you know, um, you know, you know, cloakroom, you know, movers and shakers told her that she was the future of the party. And, you know, that's why I started with Amia Culpa. I think she's overperformed. I think, as John put it succinctly, you know, she's got the not Don, you know, not Ron thing going for her. But, you know, I still I, I, I still don't know what her platform is. I still don't know necessarily like what kind of president she would be. I think if you look at the last debate, we just we spent 20 minutes talking about abortion. She gave the most sober and sort of centrist answer on abortion in the first debate of any of the candidates and told a lot of the people in that audience things they didn't want to hear. So how's that going to play out when she gets asked about it, you know, again, especially mm -hmm. seeing, you know, the way the winds are sort of blowing. So I, I still don't know, really have a great sense of who she is. And I think part of that's a function of her being caught between these two worlds of a lot of donors and a lot of image building kind of consultants who thought she was the future of a non-white, non-male Republican Party and this kind of, you know, not not Don, not Ron thing going mm -hmm. on, too. So. But, but why why is being a little bit of a cipher a disadvantage? Because, I mean, if you look at back at, you know, if you look back, I think Biden, I mean, just by virtue of being around so much was kind of a defined figure, though, obviously, he is tacked sharply. I mean, I think that the the thing to understand about Joe Biden is that he is not a a centrist, per se. He has been in the center of the Democratic Party and as the Democratic Party goes left, he goes left with it, but stays in the middle of the of, yes. the, of the lineup. But if, if you look at if you look at Obama and if you look at Trump, the magic of both of those guys was that they you could project whatever you wanted to onto them. If, if, if you wanted some if you wanted somebody to burn down Washington, Donald Trump was great. But if you want somebody that was going to, you know, stand up the Republicans on Social Security, Donald Trump was your guy. You know, same thing with Obama. He was going to it was going to be this moment of, of racial healing and reconciliation. It wasn't red or blue America. It was purple America. But, hey, this is a progressive guy that grew up, you know, as a community organizer with ties to Bill Ayers. And, you know, that set in Chicago. So I, I think that I think Haley's ability to sort of be a little bit of everything to everyone. And I, and I think with her, you know, with her record, you know, as, as governor or as UN ambassador, I mean, I think we kind of know where she is on the on the on the issues. I mean, my my biggest beef with her is that it is there's at least on the policy stuff, saying aside the foreign affairs stuff, there's not much there there. It's kind of Heritage Foundation talking points circa, you know, 2000. You know, it's like kind of early Tea Party sort of stuff. Yeah. And there's not as much like meat there or at least nothing that like is as interesting there. Um Quickest, you know, quick but related aside, interesting like Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton having a bill that says we're going to raise minimum wage, but E-Verify is going to be part of that, too. I mean, yeah. if she kind of breaks out of this just like stock think tank conservative thing and comes up with a couple of her own things to add flavor, I, I think that you could she she is politics is a game of addition and she is not a pe person who is automatically causing subtraction from any part of the coalition, at least that I see. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think you make I think you make a good point. I'll just say very quickly that, you know, it might not be the worst thing in the world in this environment to be able to have the DeSantis voters think you're you're the next best thing to DeSantis 
and to have the you know Trump voters think you're the next best thing to to Trump and the Christie voters think you're the next best thing to to Christie. I mean, yes, that could potentially be an advantage. So that's worth thinking about. But I think she's like kind of already there, Dan. I mean, setting aside sort of the whatever weirdness happens with with Ramaswamy, right? If you're if you're a if you're a Christie sympathetic person, as I am for you know, uh, you know I'm not going to hide it. I mean, it's not who I would necessarily vote for, but I, I just love the style of it. But as somebody who is just like, hey, there's been a lot of bullshit that's happened, like she's kind of appealing for that. You know, right. if, if you want somebody who has been a you know conservative governor who is whose career is on the ascent and you know, not the decline, it look Mike Pence has done a lot of great things, right? But he's in the winter of his you know period as a viable national political figure. You know, Haley is kind of I think she can put herself in that place to draft behind DeSantis. And and I think it's sort of walked into it, but I think it's a perfect analogy. At least for the time being, Ron DeSantis can be the one taking the beating, and she can be yeah. a half step back. I had. Let, I was, let me just let me just jump in here. Point, but... Can I just ask one more yeah. question about her before we move on? Because I want to talk about Biden before we finish. Um, the oh, sorry. Let me real quickly. Yeah. What I was going to say was, she was one of the few people at the time that I thought came out of the Trump administration looking better than she went in. It enhanced her. There were the questions about, oh, she doesn't have enough foreign policy experience. She seemed pretty forceful at the UN. Yeah. But I think that the the thing for me that is the real takeaway is is the Larry Kudlow moment where you know one you know National Economic Council guy and you know former what Fox business or CNBC guy um, you know talking head you know longtime conservative economic guy and was basically saying oh you know Nikki doesn't really understand X Y or Z and she just lit him up in the press the next day and you know that he like quickly quickly walked it back you know, I, I think that she's I think she's got more chops than she gets credit for. And I think that she is, she is, I think, actually willing to stick the dagger between to the me, ribs. To me, I will believe Nikki is real and that the momentum for her is real only after she takes some arrows from her former boss. Because from my perspective, Donald Trump is really only attacking one person in this race, Ron DeSantis. He doesn't need to attack Mike Pence because his own people do it for him. Um, and I, I just want to see her take that. And, and if he did, he's going to denounce her as a, you know, neocon warmonger, what have you, that kind of thing. I want to see her handle that, you know, um, by the way, that's absolute BS because she had nothing to do with that. She was governor at the time. She was not in the Congress as, as I pointed out, because uh, I just find it amusing. Uh, Christy Nome has a much more neoconservative record in terms of her voting record than uh, than Nikki Haley does. So um, I want to talk about Joe Biden uh, because I think that this was without a doubt, uh, probably the last, the last three weeks have just been the worst for Joe Biden. They have been absolutely terrible. Um, the, the, the multiple stories that have come out, multiple polls that have come out, the denials, the misinformation, the weakness of his uh, press spin with Karine Jean-Pierre, embarrassing trips overseas, going to bed. You know, the idea that, you know, he's stopped the flow at the border, you know, blowing up in his face, that he was right about Afghanistan blowing up in his face, you know, and then all this, just just the, the sequence of lies that he's told. Uh, you know, just, I mean, in the, in the most recent, you know, you know, obviously the, the idea that he visited ground zero the day after the terrorist attacks, the idea that, you know, he had a house burned down with his wife in it, you know, and almost, you know, lost a couple firefighters, just, you know, blatant lie. 
Um, you know, it's it's one of these things where he just brings things up constantly where you have to feel the the cringe of it's i'm sure there's some german word for it it's not schadenfreude there's some german word for it where it's just so uncomfortable that you want to change the channel because it makes you just feel like oh my gosh why is he doing this again what is what is wrong with him and at the same time you have all of these different developments in the hunter case including of course uh the indictment that we saw at the end of last week uh, on the gun charges, the assumption that there are going to be additional indictments to come, and perhaps some attitude from uh, the Democrats uh, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere that uh, they're willing to just sort of let Hunter be the fall guy uh, as long as they are able to move forward with the Biden candidacy. My own feeling is that uh, Joe does not want Hunter to be the fall guy, that he will never see the inside of a jail cell, and that he will pardon him after this upcoming election regardless of whether he wins or not. That's my own personal opinion. No basis, you know, for it whatsoever, just instinct. Uh, but I'm cons- I'm curious about your reactions to what has been, you know, uh, from, you know, a number of different analysts, they have described this as basically the worst two or three week period for Joe Biden in his presidency. Dan? Yeah, I mean, it, it as things get worse, it also gets later. Right. So it's a race between the clock and the bad news for Biden and and kind of the tragedy for the Democratic Party. And it ends up being a tragedy for America, too, is that you can see this stuff coming so clearly. I mean, everyone who has a kind of water cooler level um, knowledge of American politics kind of knows where this is going with the impeachment proceedings and, you know, with the um you know the 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 stories about you know garland and the alienation there and you know biden's just you know not getting any younger and all all of those things that have been true since the start of this race are still true and you know getting worse um so i you know i i don't really have much original to add to this that we haven't said a bunch of times you know before except that you know like i said it becomes a tragedy for America, too, because we're going to get this rematch of octogenarian or nearly octogenarian people. And the worse Joe Biden looks, the more likely it is that we'll get that rematch. I mean, the weaker he is, I think that's the the overriding dynamic here. The weaker he is, the more comfortable people who are soft Trump voters in the GOP primary who are thinking about other candidates, but are leaning towards Trump, the more comfortable they are voting for Trump, knowing that, that you know, that he's going to go up against a weakened Joe Biden who, you know, let's be clear, like he, you know, got pretty close to beating in the Electoral College or was in, you know, striking distance of beating in the Electoral College. So I think that that's that's the real issue here. And, and it hasn't changed. It's just getting worse. John, what do you think? Yeah, I don't I don't know that it's been worse than you know the immediate aftermath of the afghanistan withdrawal um or i mean i think it's it's like it's you know it's kind of who he is at this point um and you know look i think <laughs> i think the trump and biden campaign i mean it's sort of like the spider-man meme and if the question was like yeah. who's gonna help you win this election they're just gonna point at the other guy <laughs> um i just return again to that to that moment on the 2012 stage where ron paul you know, squeal, squeaks out. Oh, well, I think any of us could beat Obama. <laughs> it's just uh, 
this false false feeling of strength. Well, the answer in 2012 was probably Mitch Daniels was probably the only one who would have had a path to it. But no, I think Christie um, could have done it. But that's yeah, that's right. That's yeah. I, yes, yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, um well, but, I, I look, I just I I think I, I think that this is I think something broke in the last two weeks. The the Ignatius column, the the polling, the Hunter situation, the you know impeachment inquiry, which you know uh, hasn't you know won't bear fruit immediately, but will bear fruit, I believe, over the next six months. I just think all of this is sort of breaking, and I think the Democrats are kind of looking around and going, you know, we don't really have a path out of this. We got to we got to stick to it. I feel their pain. Yeah. yeah, none of us. There's no, there's no way out for any of us. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way out. As I, as I said at the beginning, every every day we slip further away from the light of God's path. <laughs> Either sartorially, no exit. <laughs> no exit. Exactly. Exactly. All right, for John, for Dan, uh, for myself, Ben Dominich. Uh, thank you so much for listening uh, to Thunderdome. Brought to you by the Spectator. You can head to thespectator.com. Sign up for our newsletters our uh, podcasts and uh and all of our other offerings and you can uh get uh a number of months free for uh of of the issue uh, of the magazine i hope you sign up for that uh with the code transom uh which is my news newsletter you can find that at the transom.com thank you so much for listening we will be back next week with more thunderdome uh to continue to navigate this absolutely ridiculous 2024 election thank you for listening